Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The FT. Hello, and welcome back to FT Science. This week, we return to our feature on science and literature with author Peter Forbes. Nabokov was actually a lepidopterist. It was his passion all his life. We consider the debate about prevention rather than cure. One of the things I think it's important for people to recognise is that that dollar of prevention today comes out of your pocket and the $10 of cure comes out of somebody else's. And we'll be discussing what's next for pharma following the closure of Pfizer's research and development facility in Kent. In pharma, we've seen these organisations make absolutely massive investments. They've put a lot of money into large-scale mergers or even acquisitions. And frankly, I think after 20, 30 years of doing that, the pipeline has not improved. I'm Andrew Jack, and you're listening to FT Science. Clive is on his way to a meeting in Washington, so it's just me and Diana Garnham this week in the studio. We're also joined on the line by author Peter Forbes. Let's begin, Peter, by discussing your new book, Dazzled and Deceived, about mimicry and camouflage and how man perhaps has followed nature. Tell us a little bit about how you came up with the idea for the book. Well, it began quite a long time ago, actually more than 20 years ago, when I I was working as a desk editor on natural history books. And I started to notice um, mimicry. Things like a praying mantis that takes on the colour of an orchid flower, so that it hides in the flower so that it can prey on insects that come to the flower. These sort of things really got to me, but it took me a long time before I could actually turn it into a book. And you talk, for example, about the, the very interesting transition in the 19th century, whereas before men in uniform would typically take on bright toxic colours from nature like red and then with the advent of the machine gun suddenly camouflage came to the fore and there was a complete transformation and a use of nature in a very different way in the military setting. Well yes, everybody knows camouflage but people don't know so much about warning signs. Mimicry uses warning signs. The warning signs in nature are red, yellow, white and black and they're the, the very colours that we've chosen for our warning signs. And in fact, what the soldiers were doing was saying, look, I'm red and visible and highly dangerous. But of course, that doesn't cut much ice against the machine gun. So they had to turn to camouflage. Many creatures in nature either use camouflage colours or they use bright warning colours. They can only use the warning colours if they're toxic. And tell us a little bit about how nature has inspired the arts. You talk about both authors authors and artists, for example, who've drawn from nature. Nature seems to be a great improviser. And this is, I think, what appeals to artists. Pick up Picasso. And Picasso regarded himself, really, as a creator, almost on a par with God. And um, after the war, Picasso made some wonderful sculptures in which he took found objects. He he found a couple of toy cars, and he realised that they had a kind of expression about them, these cars. He put them wheel to wheel, and they made one of his best sculptures. It made the head of a baboon. And I can see that, um, you know, the way nature recycles materials 
is very appealing to artists. Nabokov? Well, Nabokov. Now, he's, he's a very interesting case. Uh, Nabokov was actually a lepidopterist. It was his passion all his life. And in fact, he did have an official post at Harvard uh, as a lepidopterist. And in fact, only very recently, a paper has been published in which one of his theories about the evolution of blue butterflies has been confirmed. Now, the thing about Nabokov is that, I mean, he's a very precise writer, a very detailed writer. For him, the link between art and science was that in high art and pure science, detail is everything, he said. Thank you very much, Peter. Great uh, great to hear you in a fascinating book, Dazzled and Deceived Mimicry and Camouflage. Now, let's move on to the debate surrounding prevention and cure. Earlier, I spoke to Andrew Thompson from the biomedical company Proteus that's developed a pioneering microchip on a pill designed to boost patient compliance with their medicines. But first, I asked him about the challenge of changing the conversation from cure to prevention. One of the things I think it's important for people to recognise is that that dollar of prevention today comes out of your pocket and the $10 of cure comes out of somebody else's. And unfortunately, that's not a very good set of incentives if you want people to invest in their own wellness. And how do you deal with the equity issues around that, persuading those on lower incomes, for example, precisely to uh, change their lifestyles? Very often the, the focus of a lot of the, the need and the growing concerns around obesity and smoking and so on. Well, it's a very fair point, and what I'm, I'm really trying to point out to you there is that whether you spend public funds on wellness or cure, you're dealing with the same community. It tends to be lower-income people who have the diseases as well as the health maintenance problems. So it's really not about picking uh, different socioeconomic strata when it comes to allocating money between prevention and, and, and cure. It's about very proactively and deliberatively saying we need to shift the way we invest and that can be with both public and private funds but today that the, the very important fact to recognize is we subsidize cures but we don't subsidize prevention. Let's talk a little bit about Proteus. The, the visible face of the company certainly is this rather interesting idea of a effectively a form of microchip on a pill that patients swallow that allows monitoring of their, their adherence. How, how did the idea come about for that and how challenging has it been technologically? Yeah, so it's very important to understand the idea is not for a chip on a pill. That is a physical manifestation of a much more important phenomenon. We live in an era where information is increasingly power and we see information manifesting itself as a source of power in many different ways. Knowledge and information and the power it delivers will cause many aspects of our lives to be disrupted. And we think, very likely, it will cause healthcare to be profoundly disrupted. And in practical terms, looking at that manifestation, though, of some sort of drug that's swallowed, that has a device that allows external monitoring to see whether patients are taking medicine regularly or to see how their own body is reacting, how difficult is that to do both technically and in terms of regulatory approval? So technically, it's something that we've done. So we have thousands of patient days of experience where we're able to detect with very high precision exactly what a medicine a patient takes down to the individual pill and to correlate it very accurately with their physiologic response using wearable sensing. So the technological challenges have largely been reduced to practice. We are engaged with regulators. Uh, it'll take a little while, but it will lead to the opening up of what we think of as a very important new era in innovation in healthcare, where you tie together therapeutic potential manifested by drugs with the world's most important new utility, which is the global internet, and create a system in which individual patients and their families have the information, the education, and the motivation that they need to manage their own health care. 
Diana, very interesting, this this whole discussion of prevention, isn't it? Uh, I was talking to a leading Norwegian official the other day who was one of the big campaigners around the smoking bans. And of course, he made the point that actually one of the drivers for introducing legislation for change was the impact on other people. The challenge on so many of these chronic diseases, of course, isn't it, is it's essentially an internal thing where there's less obvious impact on others, less social pressure perhaps to change. Except on the resources. And I think everybody's aware of the resource side. I meet lots of people all the time who feel very guilty at the fact that they are using up a lot of resources and would love a cure so that they no longer did that. So I think you can look at this both ways. Cure for the costs fall on others, but that's because of we have a public health service, otherwise it would fall on you. And whatever way you look at it, chronic health problems remain a big social issue for an ageing population. So I'm not sure the balance is quite, I wouldn't see it quite as he sees it. I also don't get how his um, tracking the use of the drug falls into the prevention as much as it does the compliance. And I wonder about the patient, did they survey the patient view of having Big Brother monitor whether they were taking their drugs? Oh, is that, I mean, I think as I, I understand it, clearly these are all experimental trials the company's got underway where the patients are keen to themselves be reminded obviously particularly a lot of older people where sometimes there's the issue of forgetfulness and I mean though he's keen to sort of divert the conversation from the purely technical technological aspects it is quite a clever approach I think to apply technology not simply to the the medicine which we often get focused on and think about those broader psychological and behavioral factors isn't it about you know people for example with diabetes who if they do stop taking their medicine will end up having a much more severe series of problems that society will have to tackle. And actually if you ask the diabetes patients they they actually are calling for almost automatic systems for monitoring their insulin levels which makes them more able to feel normal. So I can see how it would develop in those those terms but I was thinking very much in terms of for example mental health where there's very poor compliance often on uh, people taking their medicines and um, how those patients would feel. The extraordinary thing is it seems even in examples of drugs for rejection of organ transplants and indeed in cancer, you do get some quite shockingly low levels of compliance, partly because of the psychology, partly because, of course, the side effects of existing drugs. But there is a big potential advantage, I think, in this, in that if you can monitor the impact, the, the physiological impact, you might be able to get dosage levels much more precise. I think that is a way, a definite way forward personalised medicine from the other end, as it were. So let's leave it there and we'll move on to our final topic for today. The considerations for the future of the pharmaceutical industry following the dramatic announcement recently by Pfizer, one of the world's largest drug companies, that it's closing its symbolic research and development centre in Kent with the potential loss of nearly 2,500 jobs. Joining me now on the line is Dr. Chaz Buntra, Chief Scientist and Head of the Structural Genomics Consortium at Oxford University, who's currently in Canada discussing precisely some of these issues around innovation and how to evolve in order to develop a new generation of medicines. So what was your first feeling when you heard about this decision by Pfizer, which does seem to have put a lot of the UK academic as well as biotech industry into shock? To be honest, I was shocked. I was saddened for a number of reasons. One, because I have many friends down there who are brilliant scientists, absolutely committed to drug discovery. And I know in the past two weeks, as I've talked to many of them, it's caused them immense anxiety because, of course, it's, there is no doubt that most, if not all of them, 
are going to have to move somewhere else to secure some sort of uh, scientific position. Secondly, I was also a little frustrated, uh, certainly disappointed, that, you know, in the past five, six years, if I just think of UK PLC, I've seen a number of farmer sites, research sites, close in the UK. Charles, when you hear all of these moves and then you talk to the drug companies, of course, we all know their rate of innovation seems to have been dropping, the cost, at least, of developing successful drugs rising. And they all seem to come up with this same rhetoric, don't they, which is that this investment in fixed assets, bricks and mortar and large teams of scientists is no longer delivering. Do you think that's right? Is there, is there a need for a, a paradigm shift in the way in which we develop new medicines? Absolutely do. I mean, I think basically, Andrew, I mean, what's happened over the past two, three decades as a biomedical community, and certainly in pharma, we've seen these organizations make absolutely massive investments in great new technologies, screening, combinatorial chemistry, genetics, genomics, uh, experimental medicine, imaging, biomarkers, etc. They've put a lot of money into large-scale mergers or even acquisitions. And frankly, I think after 20, 30 years of doing that, the pipeline has not improved. I mean, if we look at the amount of money that's been put in, and if you like the return on investment, it's not been good. And it's not surprising, therefore, that we're seeing all of this, the current activities like downsizing in, if you like, expensive countries like the UK or the West and potentially building up infrastructure in low-cost countries like India and China. So that's not at all surprising. Also, a focus on areas that they believe to be lower risk in terms of drug discovery, so things like oncology or inflammation or anti-infectives or biopharmaceuticals. And also trying to buy in some late-stage assets. My concern there is that there aren't many late-stage assets around to buy. What really is the policy point that could come out of this meeting in Toronto? What do you need to see to change, to move into the new uh, era of making drugs more effectively? Well, I think for me, the premise is, Andrew, I absolutely believe that no one organization has got the expertise to do this on their own. A drug discovery is just so immensely difficult. So what we have to do is that we're going to have to find a way of basically pooling resources, pooling capabilities, uh, pooling expertise, and sharing some of that risk, but also flexibly and quickly and cheaply accessing global academia. And, and, and I see it sitting inside academia. I can collaborate with anybody in any lab in Harvard or in Australia or wherever, I pay them nothing for it. I can do these collaborations quickly and cheaply, and, uh, and that's a great advantage. So I think we need to create a sort of a global initiative, and that's what we're trying to do, which is focused on taking completely novel targets as quickly as we can into patients to see if they're going to work or not. But we're intending to do this completely in the absence of IP because I absolutely believe that Early IP, so taking out IP in the early stages of drug discovery, uh, is slowing down the process. It's actually making it more difficult. It's slowing down collaboration. And so we're, we're saying we're going to do away with the IP. We will only consider IP on the few targets 
where we actually get some positive data in patients, so in phase two. Well, thank you very much and good luck with your with your meeting. I hope it, uh, it goes well because certainly we do need reinvigoration of innovation in medicine. Diana, what's, you, what's your feeling? We do hear quite a lot now about this debate over IP and whether it's acting as a barrier. Do you hear that a lot from people you talk to? I do, and I think a lot of people in academia have said that it's given the wrong emphasis to the way research teams think and how they're structured. And certainly a lot of anxiety in patient groups and things about the delay that it causes. And it seems obvious, doesn't it, that you need such a big skills and resource mix to take these things forward and there's no single drug company, no single university, no country that has got all that's needed. So it struck me listening to him, though, that how well do the drug companies themselves actually collaborate? And that seems to be one of the issues, isn't it? I think there's still that huge degree of conservatism about keeping as much as you can in-house. And really, if other people are doing the same things and wasting lots of money, um, too bad, right? It's, uh, it's not your problem. I think that's been certainly the traditional model. And that's all we have time for today. All that's left is for me to thank Diana in the studio, Peter Forbes, Andrew Thompson, and Dr. Chaz Buntra. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Andrew Jack. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.